Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, with this week's edition of Just Ask the Press, our weekly roundup of the news with our usual gang of suspects. Uh, Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor and from editor of CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. A lot to unravel this week, including the Supreme Court's <laughs> stunning lack of ethics. A government shutdown threatened by a couple of congressmen, unless there's an impeachment inquiry and Biden's response to that. Uh, honestly, he responded to that more than he does reach out to the press, but that's another story. Mitch McConnell has another problem. The Proud Boys have two of them were uh, uh, sentenced this week. We're all over the Georgia Rico case, including Donald Trump wanting to separate himself from it. And of course, covering the Trumpster. But before we do all that, we'll take a short break. And before we do that, of course, I want to read a statement from President Joe Biden on the passing of Jimmy Buffett. A poet of paradise, Jimmy Buffett was an American music icon who inspired generations to step back and find the joy in life and in one another. So uh, what can I tell you? There is a, a favorite song I have of Jimmy's, and it is not what most people think. It is Cheeseburger in Paradise. That's the one I like. So before we go to break, uh, anybody want to chip, chip in with their favorite Jimmy Buffett Cheeseburger, mine's Cheeseburger in Paradise. Favorite song by Jimmy Buffett. Oh, I like Margaritaville. There's a, the Margaritaville, and I, I heard yours a little earlier. Oh, John. I got two, actually. I've got two. Like I said, I don't uh, always remember the names of Buffett songs, but I really enjoy them, and they really speak to me. And I've got, got two for you. Uh, a Pirate Looks at 40 and Changes in Latitudes. Ah, Changes in Latitude, yeah. good too. Son of a son Changes of a in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes. attitudes. That's, that's right. That's right. I just want my cheeseburger in paradise. And with that, we'll be right back. Stick around. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. This weekend, taking a look at the news, it always is good to remember a guy who told you to just uh, have a change in latitude and a change in attitude. So let's start out with, um, Michael, I, I guess we're going to start out with an attitude that's a problem, and that's the Supreme Court's surprising lack of ethics. It was um, this week that it was disclosed that uh, Justice Thomas, of course, while being uh, criticized for a startling lack of ethics, took another several trips 
at at the benefit of don't from the benefit of donors in the Republican Party uh, at the same time when people were saying, look, there's a conflict of interest here. Do you, yeah, you want to unpack that a little bit? Well, sure. I think that what we're seeing across the board with these uh, elected and non-elected government officials is a sense of it doesn't apply to me. You see data on the number of congressmen and senators who still seem to be investing using proprietary information that they've learned through their committee assignments. Members of Congress and senators are still getting richer while in Congress than they started before, which is something you wouldn't expect given they arrived rich and they are now capitated by a government salary, but they're still getting richer. And some of those investments seem to be based on knowledge they've gained uh, in the committee rooms. And the Supreme Court justices seem to not appreciate that if wealthy donors pay for trips, whether it directly impacts their decisioning or not, we don't have data to support that, but it sure creates terrible appearances. And appearances matter uh, in respect of people's perception that their government is working honestly. And I think that something needs to be done on both fronts because well, it's not really tolerable, Brian, to, to have that appearance of it doesn't apply to me, just to you, um, and not develop cynicism among the population. Well, uh, John, I'll let you, your turn before I, I, I dive in, but go ahead. Well, who's going to do anything about it? There you go. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're not accountable. They're lifetime terms. What's the chief justice, you know, what I, I haven't gotten a feel for what a chief justice could do to hold someone accountable. Can he take their office away? There are only so many offices in the building. Um, their staffs have to work somewhere. Um, is Congress going to do something? I, I don't think the Republican-led House is going to crack down on what so far um, the biggest abuses here seem to be conservative justices. Um, what, are they going to pass something cracking down on Clarence Thomas and uh, Justice Alito? I don't think so. Um, so I, I don't really see uh, a, like a, something to hold these guys accountable. And, you know, you know, this does feed into the notion that everyone in Washington is just doing their own thing and lining their own pockets um, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say most folks are more worried about the price of gas and the price of eggs. Yeah, I, but, you know, <clears throat> Thomas was uh, a little bit of history on Thomas, of course. You know, he was nominated to replace Thurgood Marshall, and uh, he is no Thurgood Marshall. I mean, he was <clears throat> the Anita Hill accusations during his confirmation hearings have come back to haunt him several times. He doesn't seem to care. No one seems to do anything about it. Um Thomas said uh, during his opening statement from the uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and from my standpoint as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, this proceeding is a high tech lynching for uppity blacks that in any way deign to think for themselves to do for themselves to have different ideas 
And there's a message that unless you kowtow to the old order, this is what will happen to you. I can't find anything more disingenuous than this statement as applied to the way we're looking at Thomas today. He's been a problem for a long time. No one's done anything about him. And to your point, John, I don't think there can be anything done. And I, I think when you look at what's going on in the Supreme Court, it's obvious that the ideal, and Michael, you could speak to the ideal better than anybody else it, it, uh, among us three. Uh, the ideal of the Supreme Court is that once on the Supreme Court, you're kind of divorced because of the lifetime uh, appointment. It's supposed to, the idea was to divorce you from the daily po political grind and to give you uh, an avenue in which to pursue you know, justice without politics assigned to it. But instead, it's it's kind of flipped, and now it's used as a way to cement the the old guard or political, making sure that you can be political for the rest of your life in an office that's supposed to be apolitical. Yes. Well, I don't agree with that, Brian. You know, I, I don't. I don't. I mean, I I think Supreme Court justices have to live in the real world, and I think they have to be attuned no, yeah, to what's I, going on in in the real world. They have to make their decisions based not on you know sort of act abstract notions of law but law as it applies to to real real life i just think that the problem is that if you receive donations from high dollar people or you sign book deals uh, with um publishers and then you're you're ruling on cases that tangentially affect um the best interests of those um, publishers, it creates a terrible appearance. Even if you make decisions that have no bearing on the trip you took or the book deal you made. And I don't know that there's a lot of evidence, if any, that says because Clarence Thomas took a private jet trip or because uh, Elena Kagan signed a book deal that either of them made a decision in a case based on that um, uh, royalty or that that trip, but it's the appearance that that creates the problem because it allows us, if you will, to talk about are they being impacted by by this, and we shouldn't have to have that conversation. We should be able to say these life appointed justices understand the importance of the role that they play in society. There are only nine of them; they're there for life. They seem to spend, you know, 40 plus years on there and they really should be holier than thou. And that's what the problem is. And to well, isn't that what I said, <laughs> you're pushing back. But I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying is that they're supposed to be separate from their, their lifetime appointment gives them the ability to be uh, holier than thou, I guess. For your well, I, I, no, I guess what I was saying, where we're differing is I. I, I think they have to live in the real world. I think politics, well, yeah. politics of, of life around us um, is something that they, they need to be aware of. I mean, it's not like they should live in an ivory tower and issue uh, opinions based on theories of life rather than the reality well, that, of life. That's, that's my, what I was, Okay, that's, that's my that, the, my mistake in communication. I agree with you. That's not that you do have to live in the real world, but the idea of the appointment for life is to give them the ability to uh, be a, a little less um, beholden. Yes, beholden to daily. Thank you. That's John. 
I I just I I don't know. I I I hate to say that this is a scandal headed nowhere, but again, I I, I don't have much more to add than than what I said earlier. I don't I don't see Congress doing anything, and what can Roberts do? And and well, and and my grocery bill was over two hundred bucks yesterday, and I got a third less of the stuff I usually get. So what are we talking about exactly? <laughs> well, well, in that respect, we're talking about price gouging. I thought we've talked about this before. <laughs> okay, I'm still waiting on a candidate to tell me what they're going to do about that. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. We're talking about appearance. This is the old argument you hear all the time. Appearance versus reality. If there is, if the appearance is false, if there's no evidence that it's actually caused a problem in reality, why should we care? Maybe we shouldn't. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, with no accountability mechanism. There you go. That I'm stuck on that. I, I'm stuck on that. I, it's not, no, I do. I want my Supreme Court justices being flown around by donors or corporations. No, of course not. Um, but the system is designed the way it is. And without the votes in Congress to change the system and a president willing to sign that into law, um, then I guess they'll still ride on the donor's jet and go hunting. <laughs> and I, I don't, I just don't see what, what what's going to stop it. Is John Roberts saying, tiss, tiss, cut it out, boys. Is yeah. that, I'm <laughs> I don't, shrugging. I don't know. Oh, oh no. So you're grounded in reality. <laughs> or cynicism. It's a, it's a fine line between the two. Yeah, there you go. So let's talk a little bit uh, then about, the threatened government talk about appearance versus reality, the threatened uh, and another cheeseburger in paradise. And it's certainly no son of a sailor, but uh, we're, we're getting a threat from Marjorie Taylor Greene. In other words, that there's, they want to shut down the government unless there's a response, if, unless there's an inquiry, a, an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden and Biden response has been to look at the numbers and uh, put on some staff to handle it from that end. John, you want to unpack that a little bit? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I actually, could you repeat that? Uh, there was a noise. <laughs> yeah. out. There was oh, a noise. Not, out. I'm sorry. Were, 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 were we taking away from your cheeseburger in paradise? No, there was a small dog in the elevator near here and just going crazy. And is that what I, that was? <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand small dogs, but sorry. That's all right. So Marjorie Taylor Greene this week threatened uh, a government. She wants a government shutdown. A, can she actually produce a, a government shutdown if there's no uh, inquiry, no um, impeachment inquiry into uh, Joe Biden? And secondly, Joe Biden's response, I, he's had a greater response to this than he's had to us in the press room. He's put on additional people on uh, his staff and they're looking at um, the numbers, uh, crunching the numbers in uh from mccarthy's whip so uh tell me a little bit about that well it depends again this this impeachment for votes on what will have to be multiple spending votes this fall because what mccarthy wants to do um when they get back and the house is taking an extra week off they won't be back this week uh, the senate will be back uh, but not the House. But when they do uh, grace Washington with their presence, 
uh, McCarthy wants to move a short term, uh, what's called a continuing resolution to keep the government funded uh, into early December. And then they would have to pass, you know, one of those sprawling bills, probably for the, the remainder of the fiscal year through next September. Um, but to get there, they got to keep the federal government open and they need a short term bill. And what Green and now she's no longer in the Freedom Caucus, but they're aligned on this issue. They want a vote. Um, it's unclear what all of them want. But right now, what what MTG says is she wants a vote to open a formal impeachment inquiry. Right. Now, that's different than voting to impeach President Biden. This would start the formal investigation that may or may not get there. More on that in a second. Um, others say they wanted to go ahead and vote on uh, impeaching Joe Biden and they won't be held hostage in the spending uh, negotiations and on the spending votes. And what they mean by that is um, a lot of the conservatives and they were saying this before re the August recess started kind of seeing through. They think they thought they were seeing through McCarthy um, and he's trying to distract them by going along with impeachment. Um, and and they'll be distracted somehow in the spending votes. And I guess I, I'm trying to follow their logic. Sometimes that's difficult. Yeah, um, find me that, some logic. Yeah, that they would somehow not realize they were voting on a CR <laughs> and they would all vote yes because they're so distracted by impeachment. Um, that's not really how it works. They would know what they're voting on. Um, but, but, and it, this is what the, his whole speakership uh, at least in this current Congress through next year will be about. Um, he may have trouble passing spending bills um, if enough conservatives revolt and that number outweighs the number of Democrats uh, that would vote for spending bills. And that's not, and, and, you know, a lot of the Democrats will probably vote against a CR for various reasons. A lot of the progressives, it, it, it would have less spending than they want, that kind of thing. Then you would maybe have some moderate Democrats vote against it. Um, and you might not be able to get to 218 votes needed to pass it. And McCarthy, you know, if he if he were to um, pass it with a majority, so a majority of 218 um, whatever uh, a majority plus one of that number is, uh, we're not <laughs> mathematicians here, folks. Um, if he passed that, if, if if most of the votes came from Democrats, then the conservatives would come, would at least threaten to come for his gavel and try to end his speakership. That's the threat that they have, and they're going to have that for the rest of, of this current Congress. So that's his predicament. Does he hold the vote to start a formal impeachment inquiry, which he says... He supports to keep those enough of the conservatives voting for these spending bills. You know, so it, again, it's this tightrope that McCarthy's trying to walk. Uh, now, he, McCarthy, says he would support uh, moving forward with an impeachment inquiry because, according to him, it would unlock some more subpoena and other investigatory powers. And they haven't been able, they say they haven't been able to get all the documents they want from Biden world and uh, DOJ and other entities that they claim they could get most of them with these additional powers. So, you know, McCarthy, yes, you could say he's playing a game. You could say he's being a tactician, um, but it very well may be that before any stopgap measure hits the House floor before the end of the month, that, that 
the House very narrowly um, would would vote to open an impeachment inquiry. But the problem there is, um, it's a, again, it's a numbers game. There are 18 House Republicans who won districts in 20, uh, 20 and 2022, I'm sorry, in 2022, that Biden won in 2020. So they're in a bind. Um, uh, all of them can't vote for the impeachment to start the impeachment inquiry. So the conservatives also have a numbers problem. Can they get to 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 two eighteen on the inquiry? Um, so this is all just one big whip operation. Everybody's got to get their their whip operation up and running, and McCarthy's got to figure out. Um, which would if, explain why he, Trump. I'm sorry. Which would explain why I'm, I hate to interrupt, but what you're saying about the whips that comes in. That's one of Biden's strategies is to try and find out what the numbers are. I'm sorry. The, the, yeah, I, I'm sure the White House is trying to figure out if if they have the numbers. The White House going on the attack, and they they are throwing a couple elbows here. You know, the problem, one of the problems that that I see with the White House, you know, it's one thing to put out a statement from Andrew Bates or Ian Sam, yeah. some of their press people, some of their better press people, I think, more aggressive. Yes. But those guys aren't in front of the camera. No. And, and let's face it, this is a TV culture, and I'm a print guy. But let's face it, if you want to get your message out there, you got to get on TV with it and you got to get on social media with it and that they're not doing that. And then when Corinne Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, is asked about this stuff in the briefing room, she won't even comment. No, so I, it's just inconsistent. And they're not they're not being as effective yet again with the messaging on this as they could be, because the White House going on the attack somewhat tells me that. Their whip count shows that it's very close. And, you know, I think they think they have it and they're trying to hold people on on their side to vote no. Yeah. And and let's talk a, a little bit about that. One of the other things that uh, I guess it is disconcerting me is the White House has not come out with what the other conditions are like. Um, she <laughs> Green says she's not even her condition vote is not only on starting the inquiry, but withdrawing U.S. defense funds from Ukraine, cutting out federal spending for new COVID-19 vaccines and ending, quote unquote, Biden's monetization or weaponization of government. She wants to uh, cut funds to the DOJ. All of those things to me would be pushback. But like you say, we don't hear that in the in the briefing. Not only do we not hear it, but we damn sure don't hear it from from uh, what what from Biden's staff, what he's done instead is beefed up his staff to go after, and I think he's even uh, done some legal work on this to try and push back. But none of that has is percolating up to the surface. Michael, well, I you know, I don't know the politics of this as well as you and 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 John do for sure. But one of the things I've decided that I want to spend more time on in in the month of September is the merits of the allegations against Hunter Biden and uh, the Hunter and the, and the Biden family, because in the ecosystem of news that I tend to listen to, it's not covered. Right. And, and therefore my knee jerk reaction when the people who are covering it, the Fox news people and the people who are, screaming about it, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim Johnsons, it makes me say, well, this is just 
you know, political showmanship. But I've sort of come to the conclusion that I need to find out for myself whether or not there is a there there. There. <laughs> um, because if there is a there there, if the allegations which involve, you know, serious money laundering and uh, financial corruption, while President Biden was Vice President Biden, then it is something that has to be inquired of. Uh, I just don't know, though, because of the news sources that I generally listen to, uh, whether there is um, merit in it. So, you know, sort of before I say, well, this is Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan, you know, being uh, lunatic, I, I want to first learn it. And I don't know whether you, Brian, or you, John, have really dived into this. Um, it doesn't seem it like it is just a big nothing burger. We're sticking with the burger uh, word throughout this podcast. <laughs> but that there is... In reference and you know, deference to in, our cheeseburger in paradise. Yeah, it does seem like there may be more to it than uh, the liberal me media outlets are giving time to. So well, I'll tell you, this is... I, having covered the Benghazi and the Hillary Clinton investigation, it seems on the surface of it as very similar to that. You have to remember that a lot of this information that they claim that they have, we haven't seen. And that's so that makes it very difficult to to even report on what it is that they've seen. However, and John, you can speak to this better than I. One of the things that I do remember it and one of the things that's most telling as far as it goes is james comer standing on, on fox news and being asked if uh he has information that does he have real evidence and they they don't that haven't presented any and says uh it, maybe i think so and then Devereux coming out of i think it was Devereux coming out of that one test you know they're saying he's going to testify that all of this was that and he came out and he goes no i don't that's like hunter biden didn't talk you know there was no uh, vice president Biden wasn't around it had nothing to do with him. So what we've seen so far, I don't think rises to the, the level of, an, uh, of a, of a legitimate investigation. But again, to your point, Michael, I want to wait and see. Yeah. I do want to see if there's any, if there is a there there, but in my, and I've spent some time on this, you know, a little bit of time on it anyway, I haven't seen a there there yet. I keep waiting for the there that's got to be there, John. Yeah, I think that's correct, that there's no there there and they haven't showed us. You know, they've made all kinds of allegations, right? Um, but they haven't proven it. And you know, I've said this here and elsewhere and written it before, you know, you and me and others have asked them and I've asked them off the record, okay, just show me the evidence. I'm willing to... I'm willing to be convinced. I'm, I'm, you know, willing to write about it, you know, and when you tell someone, show me your evidence, I'm willing to write about it. And then they don't provide it to you. My experience over the years is they don't have it. Yeah, um, right. I used to cover uh, defense spending and defense budgets um, in a part of my life. I'm glad is behind me. And, you know, when, when the Navy would come at me, uh, well, the army's doing this or the air force is withholding that. And, you know, okay, show me the memos, show me the documentation. I won't, you know, on background, I, I'll 
pro I'll protect the source. And then they wouldn't, you know, there, there was no memo. There's no evidence. It was just an allegation uh, without any basis in reality. Now, another telling and another telling part of this, uh, Daryl Issa was in town this week, a Republican congressman from, uh, I believe, California, long time, uh, long time uh, lawmaker. And he is an ally of McCarthy, of Speaker McCarthy. Yeah. Um, he was here to, you know, it was his turn to preside over one of these pro forma sessions because Congress has been on its August recess. And um, CQ roll calls Ellen Ferguson trekked over to the Capitol. And uh, she was one of the reporters that chatted him up as he was, um, I guess, leaving after the session. And he said something very interesting that I wrote about in CQ Afternoon Briefing, our newsletter, afternoon <laughs> newsletter. And the plug is in. Shameless plug. <laughs> Uh, and thanks to Ellen, hat tip to Ellen for, for getting up there and talking to him. But Issa kept saying, this doesn't have to end with an impeachment vote on the floor. This could end with just criminal referrals to the Justice Department. And he kept saying, he kept telling the reporters, and he kept, but he kept saying, and this was a message to those conservatives, everyone needs to think about the word impeachment. It could just be the inquiry, and then we give everything to federal prosecutors and let them continue on the path of, of maybe charging someone someday. So I thought that was a very telling sign from ISA, but it also kind of pretends what's coming when they get back next week. This is going to be a huge fight in the House among Republicans um, because you've got McCarthy and ISA saying, okay, let's just unlock these powers and and get some more documents. And then, you know, and Issa kept saying, we need to wrap this up. He said, we don't need to keep investigating this until the election next year. Basically, we need to start talking about these kitchen table issues. Um, so we can we can get these new powers with an inquiry, uh, get the additional documents and testimony, and, and then write a report, wrap it up, wipe our hands up, and send it over to DOJ. So I thought that was very interesting stuff from Issa. And, but, 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 Boy, it's gonna be a it's gonna get really noisy in the house. <laughs> you ain't kidding. As the, always. The problem with that proposed solution, of course, is that who on the Freedom Caucus side of the ledger is gonna trust that this weaponized DOJ is gonna do an honest investigation? That's right. That's if right. I were of their if I were of their mind and I would say, hey, look. Let's take the initial Hunter Biden investigation that U.S. Attorney Weiss is doing. And he's been doing this for a really long time, and he hasn't really scratched the surface of, of much. And then there's questions after the plea agreement falls apart, whether or not we really need a special counsel, an outsider, to look at this to make sure that everything that should be looked at is being looked at. And what does the DOJ do? They appoint Weiss when the first line of the regulations say, uh, special counsel shall be appointed from outside of the Department of Justice. And so I don't know how that was a proper appointment under the regulations, but it does sure create cynicism that if you're gonna have the Justice Department um, take a, a, a fresh look at this, that you appoint the same guy who has been looking at it and has been criticized for not really looking at it hard enough, 
because he's a Delaware guy. And even though, quote unquote, President Trump appointed him, the, the truth of the matter is that two Democratic senators making the recommendation to the president, this is not, you know, a, a traditional Trump appointee. Right. It, uh, and, and so, you know, it's always it always makes me laugh when people say, well, and he's appointed by tre- President Trump. Yes, technically, he's appointed by President Trump. But is he, uh, you know, a conservative Republican uh, of the of the type that Trump would have preferred as a U.S. attorney? Absolutely not. Not when you have two Democratic senators because they defer to their desires, generally speaking, in the appointment of U.S. attorneys. And so if you wanted to really take a hard look at this with a new set of eyes, you appoint someone from outside of the state of Delaware uh, uh, and outside of the, the government. So I don't see them uh, expect, uh, I don't expect them to accept Daryl Issa's uh, proposal. No. As, as, sm- as smart as it might be to, to just do that, uh, well, I, I just don't see them trusting the DOJ. Yeah, I don't, to, to yeah, I don't either. And that's why I say that they're just headed for this big fight. And then you throw the spending issue in um, and that just further, I mean, that's just, that's lighter fluid because what the conservatives want there is they want uh, they want deep spending cuts deeper than uh, than was agreed to by Biden and McCarthy in the debt and spending deal earlier this year. They want to go uh, much deeper than that. And they say they'll withhold their votes unless they get that. So, you know, these guys right now, you could say they're in the driver's seat on on all of this uh, heading into the fall and winter and. You know, this is going to be really something from now until uh, the holidays. Yeah, well, until next November. And, Michael, you said something. Before we go to break, I'll just close with this. You said something, Michael, you know, if they were smart. Well, that, that's a big condition. And I'll leave it with this. The uh, this, is, this is where we are as far as the reporting. Hunter Biden's business associate, Devin Archer, testified before the House Oversight Committee that he has no knowledge no knowledge that then Vice President Joe Biden changed U.S. foreign policy to help his son, and he's not aware of any wrongdoing by the elder Biden, according to transcripts of his testimony. And mind you, the Republicans still came out of that meeting saying, I think we've got something. So that's where we are coming into and coming out of the break, which leads us to believe, John, you're absolutely right. It's going to be one hell of a fight this fall. Well, so, can I just, I'm sorry. To yeah. Go ahead. Talk so much in this segment. But, you know, thinking back to, you know, a lot of the White House reporters were on the trail at the end of the the Biden, uh, Obama Biden administration. Um, You know, we didn't we don't really travel that much. Uh, So I was at the White House and reporting and, you know, Obama was able to do more foreign policy, focus on foreign policy more because, you know, he didn't have the votes in Congress and was worried about his legacy. And I just don't remember in any of my reporting or or colleagues reporting back then that Joe Biden was suddenly driving Obama's foreign policy. So, you know, he did have a portfolio um, and he was the last one in the room talking to President Obama um, about decisions, you know, and, and his you know, he had influence over things like when when President Obama decided to not bomb Syria. You know, that was that was an evening walk around yeah. the South Lawn driveway with Biden, who, you know, Obama had reservations, Biden had bigger ones and convinced the boss. But 
other than that, you know, I can't really think of, you know, the 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 situation with the the Ukrainian prosecutor. I will say, um, because it's so rife, and 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 Hunter was doing business, you know, it's an easy one to turn into a conspiracy theory. But other than that, you know, o Obama's policy toward China didn't change drastically in the time period that Republicans say they're looking at. Right. You know, and, and you and I reported, Brian, that it was Obama who got frustrated, got really yes. frustrated with some expletives in an Oval Office meeting near the end of or in the last year of his presidency, because the Chinese, you know, they would just ignore the rules. They would say they would agree to something and then just double down on what they had been doing. So, you know, and, and you know, Joe was involved. Vice President Biden was involved in all of that. But, you know, Obama Obama made those decisions on policy. At the yes, end and he always did. Anybody who claimed that yeah. Biden made those decisions is not knowledgeable of how that. Why yeah. So, worked. you know, I'm not, you know, again, if, if they have their there, they have evidence. Let's see it. But that's just not that's just it's not grounded not, in the reality there. of what was going on at the time. Yep. Well, and, can I just say one thing, Brian, if, you, if yeah. your statement, if the, the witness's statement is we have no evidence that. U.S. foreign policy changed um, as a result of Hunter Biden's involvement with the Chinese. That that's not really the the question, or not that's not the the sole question. If, for example, when I was a money laundering prosecutor, if well, he's not even aware. And to amend that, he's not even aware that there was anything said between the two of them. He was he never witnessed anything said between the two of them. But if so, if I were a prosecutor and I was investigating corruption and uh, I had one party texting or or emailing um, or sending through, you know, sort of a WhatsApp uh, messaging, something that says, hey, you know, dad, it would be helpful to me if you could just text me at eight o'clock on Thursday when I'm meeting with um, with with my clients. That's all I need you to do. And that says, all right, fine. Uh, that's all I need you to do. And that's a signal that the vice president, you know, is aware of what his son is doing. That doesn't require a change in foreign policy, but that could be reviewed as a act of uh an overt act of you know corruption because you're you know sort of facilitating the behavior of uh, another so uh, i guess what i'm saying here is that statement of it uh, in and of itself is not fully ex um, exonerating of anything uh, it's not a matter of you don't need to change foreign policy if for example hypothetically and it's only hypothetically because i said at the outset i don't know anything about what i'm talking about factually if hypothetically um, Hunter Biden is meeting with the Chinese um, investors or the Ukrainian investors, and he says, "Hey, look, you know, my dad is in on this, um, and he'll he'll be able to help us." Um, and you know, I've told him that we're meeting, and he's just going to text me as a sign of his, you know, sort of awareness well, of it. And, I, and and the and the and the text comes through. You'd want to look into that. You'd want to. Figure yeah, out uh, absolutely. Doing. 
And you'd also want to, and you know, and and if and if Hunter Biden got, and they, and the and if the Chinese or the Burisma, whomever said, all right, you know, you've proven that you know what you've said. Here's here's money. Okay, for well, let me interrupt you for this. The one, take a look at this is from the transcript. Did Hunter Biden ever ask his father to take official actions on behalf of his business partners? He Stop. did not. That's the not, but I'm telling you, that's not necessarily the right question because I understand what would doesn't the right have question to be, be. It doesn't have to be, did he take official action? It could be, did he communicate with, do you have any information about whether he communicated with his son that allowed his son to continue to do business or gain a business advantage for doing it? And do you have any information as to whether his, whether he, the father himself received any monies as a result of that uh, communication? Is there, are there any questions in there about that? Yes. And uh, the statement from Comer was that every day this bribery scandal becomes more credible. Uh, according to the testimony, let's see, let me dig through it real quick. Uh, that, that this is, the, and they also said, this is a smoking gun evidence. We need to prove that Joe Biden was the head of the Biden bribery scheme. And according to the testimony, he didn't say anything about text, but he said there was, I knew of no communication. He didn't specifically talk Who's about the witness text. again, Ryan. Uh, Devin Archer, who was the one that was Devin Archer was the one who uh, went for uh, who was trying to build the business in uh, Ukraine and elsewhere for. For Hunter Biden, um, the what the broader point was, is that Hunter Biden wanted to give the impression he could bend Joe Biden's will. But in private conversation, he said he couldn't. So, I mean, you're right. There's, there's, is there a there, there? I guess we still need to find out if there's even a, a scintilla of evidence of there being a there, there. But so far, again, and John, you and I have, I, I, I you know, maybe Michael, you need to be the one asking questions because so far, <laughs> I haven't seen that those specific questions asked, but I haven't seen any evidence presented either from either side nor has anyone on the Republican side even asked the question that you just asked. So I, I, I'd, I'd love to see it settled once and for all. And the, the fact that it hasn't been settled um, is, is disconcerting on, on a number of levels, including the level of, you know, the, I mean, if you got to sit like Hillary Clinton through seven hours of testifying before they exonerate you, well, whatever. So we're, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Proud Boys. So stick around. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. We're going to start this section out with the wonderful... Proud Boys, two of them this week sentenced uh, 
Ethan Nor uh, Nordian uh, or Nordine, a ground commander, a ground commander of the far right group, got 18 years, matching the longest January 6th sentence so far. And Dominic Pizzola, among the first rioters to enter the Capitol, received 10 years. Michael, you want to tell us what's going on with our the wonderful Proud Boys? They got sentenced to lengthy periods of time in jail. I mean, <laughs> the, prosecu the prosecutors uh, asked for longer times. Joe Briggs got 17 years also, Brian. Um, so you've got uh, a late, I think it's an 18-year, 17-year, and 10-year and, um, sentence. And then I, th I thought there was... I thought there was a, a fourth sentence of, of, of 15 years, but um, I, I thought that there were like four all, all together. Briggs gets 17 years. Zachary Rell um, gets 15 years. And then I thought there were two others that you mentioned who got like 18 and 10. And, and 10. So you got four people ranging from 10 to 18 years. And although the prosecutors asked for 30, I, I think these are very long sentences. And, you know, if you think that these were insurrectionists who were out to overthrow the government, uh, I don't see how you can't be uh, unhappy with 18 and 17 years in federal prison for doing that. One would, one would hope, I would expect, that it would have a chilling effect on people, people's willingness to act. I don't want it to um, necessarily chill their free speech rights to complain about the deep state or you know their dissatisfaction with. Um, government, I, I do want them to stop threatening people online or in person, and I do want them to stop acting violently um, in behalf of their beliefs. I don't think this analogizes to 1776, which was their mantra there on, on, on the Hill. This is the second American Revolution. I don't see any uh, analogy between those two things. And I'm hoping that these sentences will have those who are watching it, who are of a similar political view, to step back from the belief that they need to violently overthrow the government or that they need to violently intimidate those who they um, whose politics they disagree with and return to a more normal uh, rhetorical discourse uh, around their point of views versus those who disagree with them. And so hopefully it's a it's a tipping point moment, but you know that remains to be seen. Well, I, I always thought you know in that respect, I always thought it was like they were cosplaying. you know they were I'm I'm a revolutionary and they weren't. They were it, now Pozzola was the only one of these men that you mentioned that was charged who was not found guilty of sedition. Um, as the New York Times reports, but the jury convicted him of six other felonies, including assaulting a police officer, conspiracy to keep members of Congress from certifying the election, and the destruction of one of the Capitol building's windows. I mean, 
it's always been to me like they they and having seen them that morning and been there watching it it's like they were protect they they thought they were something that they weren't like you said they thought they were revolutionaries but they were just i i if they had shown up you know in minutemen outfits i wouldn't have been surprised john yeah at first and i admit i was um i was off and and distracted when these sentences came down and you know at first i was a bit surprised that uh i i mean i didn't think that they would get the 30 years or or whatever the prosecutors were asking for uh but i thought they would be closer you know, into the twenties, but then, you know, I thought about it more and, and read into this and, you know, these guys are going to lose their, they're going to lose the, the, the primes of their adult lives. They're going to lose their, um, you know, their prime earning years. They're going to, they're going to lose their ability to really get a good job when, and if, you know, um, if, if, sorry, when they're released from prison and let's face it, you know, they're, they're going to not, if they have children, they're going to miss, uh, you know, their, their children's uh, teenage years, probably, and, and early adulthood. And, you know, maybe some of them had aspirations to be parents. Well, they're, they're, they're going to lose that too, probably. So, uh, and that goes to what Michael was saying, the deterrent effect, the chilling effect that this would happen again. So, you know, they're going to lose really the best years of their lives. Um, And, you know, it's just too bad. It's just too bad that they fell for the lies and they fell for the rhetoric of, of Donald Trump and others. And, you know, you hope that the judge took all that into account uh, in thinking about the sentences. Uh, we've got Mr. Tario, who was the leader of the Proud Boys. <clears throat> He's due to be sentenced. This was delayed. Uh, the judge was uh, under the weather last week. So on Tuesday, he will be sentenced. Prosecutors want that one to be the longest of these sentences. He was not there on January 6th. He was right. uh, arrested for defaming a Black Lives Matter banner at a rally um, in D.C. a few days before, and um, authorities asked him to leave the city, and he did, but he, but not before he appointed two on-the-ground commanders that you referred to, Brian, uh, to lead the charge on January 6th and be uh, these, you know, full revolutionaries or these 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 phony revolutionaries that didn't carry out the mission. I'm not sure they really understood the mission. They just said it was really cool. One of them is on tape saying it was just so was so cool to storm the Capitol and take it back. Um, even though hours later, Congress reconvened and finished its work of, of counting the electoral uh, college votes from the states. So they didn't take really take anything back, maybe for a couple hours until uh, Washington Metro PD showed up and uh, yeah. uh, beat the crap out of them and took the building back. That's pretty much yeah. how it went. Uh, and another hat tip to MPD uh, for 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 really saving the day and helping Capitol Police clear the building and then and then lock it down. So, you know, I just it's just really unfortunate. And you do hope the sentences because these guys are, are mostly in their 30s and 40s, um, they're going to lose those peak years in prison. Yeah. And you hope that 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 makes people, if this ever gets stirred up again down the road, this kind of fervor. Um, on the right or left that it'll make people realize, you know, if, if I, if I participate in this, you know, I'm going to lose the best years of my life. Yeah. And to your point, it was Pozzola who was the foot soldier in this, you know, that he was not a commander. He was a foot soldier and he was, had only joined the proud boys a couple of weeks before the insurrection, but prosecutors said he was an enthusiastic foot soldier 
And what happened on January 6th was the political violence that he signed up to partake in. Um, he had smashed a window at the building after stealing a plastic riot shield and took a video of himself smoking what he called a victory cigar inside the Capitol building. He was, according to a, a prosecutor, he was the literal poster boy of the conspiracy. But when he got into trial and after being found guilty, he said um, he addressed the court, apologized to his two daughters, his his uh, longtime partner, Lisa McGee, saying, I have broken this family and crushed your heart. He apologized to his daughters and his, his fiance saying, I've broken this family and crushed your heart. He told Judge Kelly he was a changed and humbled man and that at times he feels like he lives in an emotional black hole. And so the, uh, the judge acknowledged that Pozzolo was a relative who covered the Proud Boys, and that's why he wasn't he was acquitted of seditious conspiracy. But noted, quote, you really were in some ways the tip of the spear that allowed people to get into the Capitol. So I think to both of your points, Michael and John, there this I think will hopefully be a deterrent against further insurrection against the US government in such a violent fashion. It'll be very interesting to see what what the sentencing in this case is. You mean the head of it? When the yeah, head of, yeah I, I think it would be, that would be interesting too. Uh, I mean, they're all screaming Trump won, but uh, I, you know, I, we'll see what they say after they're sentenced to. If he does get more than 18 years, I mean, I don't know how many they're asking for in his case. It might be 30, might be 40, depending on it's what he over gets. 30. It's not 40, it's over, but it's over yeah, 30. Over 30. Then, yeah. then, that's going to be very, very interesting. So I agree with that. We want to move on to uh, something I want, Michael, if you can unpack a little bit. If you saw the headlines this week, and I have purposely waited a while to talk about this because I just am so sick of talking about Donald Trump, but um, he filed a motion to separate himself in the uh, in the Georgia Rico case. How how in that in the in the speedy trial part of it? How do you separate the head of the RICO trial from the RICO trial, Michael? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, because what um, Chesborough and Sidney Powell have done is they've moved for a speedy trial. Under Georgia state law, you have a right as a defendant to apply uh, for a speedy trial. Federal defendants have the same thing. There is this thing called the Speedy Trial Act. It's a federal act. There's also state um, speedy trial acts. And under the Georgia Speedy Trial Act, you have a right to be tried in a, in a defined period of time. In the case of Chesborough and Sidney Powell, that defined period of time is before November 6th, I think. And yeah. if you uh, ask for that, the judge has to set a trial, which he uh, which was done, and that's October the 23rd. And if the prosecution does not initiate the trial, then you are acquitted. You're, you're found not guilty. And so they moved for that trial. Fannie Willis said, fine, we're ready for that trial. Donald Trump said, I'm not ready for, I don't want a speedy trial. I want a, the opposite of a speedy trial. Yeah, he wants it in 2026. <laughs> right. And and his lawyer 
has said in other cases, in the uh, Chutkin case, that these aggressive trial dates will prevent me from providing my client effective assistance of counsel because I just can't prepare the case that quickly. It's too big a case. So Donald Trump is formally saying, I want nothing to do with the Speedy Trial Act requests of Chesborough and um, Sidney Powell. I want this case to be calendared um, in, on a much slower timeline. So yeah, of course it makes sense. Uh, now, Chesborough has done two things which are sort of make me smile. One most, the biggest smile is he, so the two of them right now, um, Powell and Chesborough are set for trial on October 23rd. Fannie Willis has said, I'd like to try everybody on October 23rd. Judge, make them all come in on the 23rd. And the others have said, no, we don't want to go on the 23rd. We won't be ready on the 23rd. And that's what that is about. And those who don't want a speedy trial, I don't think will be forced into a speedy trial uh, calendar date. I think those trials will go separately and, and Fannie Willis is going to have to try her case at least twice, which is a big advantage to the defendants because they get to see the preview and the full picture and then they get to try their case after having, you know, sort of like who is the villain and you are watching the movie for the first time and you're thinking, I don't know who the villain is. There could be this person. Could be that. Then when you watch the movie the second time, you would absolutely know who the villain is because you've seen the movie. Right. And um, <laughs> so, and, and Funny Willis has to put on her case pretty much uh, the first time. And then the people who don't, um, or who aren't on trial get to watch the movie. If, as I just said. Right. You know, but the funny thing is that Chesborough has filed this motion and, uh, so has um so is she and um Chesbro has filed a motion now saying I don't want to go to trial with Sidney Powell. Get me get me get me a different <laughs> trial date from her. She's nuts, you know. I, I want to be I want to be tried alone. I don't, I don't, I don't want I don't want her sitting next to me for God's <laughs> sakes, you know, Judge. Yes. She's a lunatic, you know. Help a brother out. <laughs> so, so he's filed a motion. He's filed a separate motion. He's filed a, a severance motion, as they call it. So the first one was a speedy trial. Now he's filed a severance motion saying, um, thank you, Judge, for, for granting my speedy trial uh, request. You have no choice. Um, yeah. But now, now, please, 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 please sever me from... <laughs> From Sidney Powell, don't make me go to trial with with her. Um, and so that's sort of what the next thing is that is pending. So, but I think Brian most likely he's going to end up going to trial with Sidney Powell. Yes, that's going to be <clears throat> and 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 that could be an interesting trial. But you know the thing about this is is that some people have said, well, Chesborough was calling her bluff. Um, and that she wasn't going to be ready. And because he's, you know, sort of a smaller player than the bigger players that she'd let him go. But obviously that didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah. And some people have said, well, now that that gambit failed, he may move for a continuance of the October 23rd trial date, uh, which he can do. And that would essentially revoke his request for a speedy trial and then he would fall back in with the um 
with the others. And so maybe the way he, if he doesn't get his severance motion granted, and if he doesn't want to go to trial with just Sidney Powell, he might say, you know what? Maybe I'm better off with the with the, with the other. Right. <laughs> Let her go to trial herself and you know, see if she could subpoena uh, the ghost of Hugo Chavez to testify <laughs> on her behalf. And Casper the Fenway ghost. While you're at it, hey John, here's my question for you. Out of all this, all this lunacy, the latest polls show that Donnie, dear Donnie, is damn near even with uh, the president of the United States. How in the hell does that happen? Uh, the one poll out uh, just this morning, Sunday, as we record this, shows uh, they're now tied. It's 46-46. And I yep. believe in the same poll, uh, three weeks uh, or a month ago, Biden was up by by just over four points. So uh, paradoxically, <laughs> Trump has closed the margin of error in that poll since word of the Georgia indictment came down that that it was definitely happening and then of course we found out uh the charges he was facing uh in the peach state and uh in fulton county there so you know this continues to baffle not just this correspondent uh but a lot of other folks who have been doing this a while you know as um i believe it was george stephanopoulos as this week was coming on this morning said uh, it used to be one gaffe one misstep one scandal and that was it for a presidential candidate. And now we've got 91 felony charges against the Republican frontrunner. And he's pulling away from the rest of the Republican field. The only other candidate who's catching any kind of, of um, popular support or any additional support is really Viv Vivek Ramaswamy, who is just playing the character of a of a younger Trump, he's he's out yeah. singing Trump's praises. It's the same policies, it's the same rhetoric, and so Trump is not losing the grip. The only other guy that's really resonating resonating is is the 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 guy who's playing a different, slightly different version of Trump on TV, uh, and it's working for him. So this continues to be a head scratcher, you know. But a lot of you know Republicans they. They still think Trump is their champion. They think he's their voice. They think he he cares about them, and he's convinced them that that he is, as he said in his acceptance speech in 2016 at the Republican National Convention the first time, that he is the one human being on earth that can fix the country's problems. They still believe that. Yeah. I, he's the one person in this country that's created most of the problems. I still look at that. This is an overinflated ego gas bubble that will burst as soon as it, you know, this, to, you know, Michael, we're talking about the, the trials. It's going to be live stream, the one in Georgia. And that's, that's coming. I don't think Donald Trump, I, I think the bubble will burst much like, you know, the housing bubble burst and they're going to the this, I think portends horrendously for the GOP in the uh, general John. Yeah, can I just, I want to ask Michael something uh, along these lines. I wanted to get to this last week. We didn't have a chance. You know, I heard someone make a great point that trials have a way of really crystallizing things and trials being televised or streamed um, can really change opinions about the case and the defendant and, and how people feel and whether they want them, you know, 
convicted and put behind bars. Um, and so I, I was, I wanted to get uh, Michael's perspective on that. Well, just look at the OJ Simpson trial and, and see, you know, sort of how people responded to watching that evidence come in and, you know, the terrible mistake that prosecutors made by asking OJ Simpson to put on that bloodstained glove that, that didn't fit and allowing the, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit line um, uh, come in. And, and so, yeah, I think these. All the cute years of studying the law just for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. You know, I was on TV with with Johnny Cochran after the verdict, <clears throat> and he was asked about the the verdict, and he said of him about himself. Here we go. Better lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, a rapper he would not be, but. <laughs> But but the point is to John's question, yes, watching trials can make a difference. And you know, if you wanted to uh, look at it by analogy, um, Watergate, the Watergate, the Sam Irvin hearings in Watergate, um, before they began, the Republicans were wholly in Richard Nixon's corner, almost none. Um, were uh, um, against him. And in fact, Baker, the, the senator from Tennessee who said, you know, the question is, what did the president know and when did he know it? That famous line uh, was said by him as, you know, sort of a defense of Nixon at the time, which was, there is no evidence that the president knew this um, what he knew and and when he knew it in relationship to it. But then as these witnesses started coming in, as um, John Dean testifies and then Butterfield says there's a taping uh, right. machine and others talk about the this conspiracy, the Republicans started changing their mind. You and know, so leading, did the country. And so did the country. Well, Yes, exactly. And so did the country. And in fact, there's a famous story that that Bernstein uh, tells. And, you know, if we're plugging slightly in my podcast, I have a interview with Carl about his uh, memoir, uh, a, kid, a Kid in the Newsroom. But he tells a story. We were talking about this exact point. And Nixon, the, the, the uh, Watergate hearings are ongoing. <clears throat> and the tide is turning and it looks like he's going to be impeached and or maybe he's just been impeached in the house and uh, it's getting ready to go to the senate and he asked goldwater barry goldwater the senator from arizona who <clears throat> was the head of the republican party essentially uh in, in, remember he was there 1960 or 60, 64 presidential candidate. Um, he was really the head of the, the, the Republicans. And so Nixon calls in Goldwater and he says, Barry, how many votes do we have? Meaning how many Republican senators will vote to acquit me? Um, so if I'm acquitted, maybe I stick around and I suffer the 
Bill Clinton, you know, sort of act, you know, sort of horror of having to be tried in the Senate. But if I know the outcome is foregone in my favor, I just tough it out and I continue as president. And so he says, how many votes do we have? And Goldwater says, a few, Mr. President, but you will not have mine. Yes. And, and then Nixon resigns um, the next day. Yeah. And, and that was because of the way the evidence came in in the Watergate, quote unquote, trial. So, John, I think the answer is watching the evidence come in can change things. The only asterisk I would put is that the January 6th hearings were sort of trial-like. I mean, there was a lot of evidence that was presented by a lot of witnesses. Didn't mm -hmm. seem to change many minds. So right. we'll have to see whether th this, you know, um, these trials uh, can change minds or whether the opinions are so baked in uh, among the, you know, the electorate that even in the face of trial testimony that establishes, you know, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, assuming that's what the evidence shows, um, will anyone's mind be changed? And that's a big, it remains to be seen. But we have examples. Well, we have examples, uh, 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 I think, in history where trials do make a big difference. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, well, before we go to our last break, I'll, I'll close it this way, John. The, I remember one anecdotal bit of evidence was during the uh, Watergate hearing. Our next door neighbor was a milkman who was, you know, Nixon's the one, was a huge conservative guy. After after the testimony by John Dean, watching that guy, in, in fact, you know, an early MAGA member, he would have been a MAGA guy, say he's guilty as hell, I couldn't vote for him again. I think the change that you will see, what the difference, Michael, I think between a trial and what we saw in the January 6th committee is that the January 6th uh, committee hearings were held by members of Congress, politicians, which people already doubt. Now, they do doubt or have been trained to doubt uh, courts as well, but there still is an inherent, I think, an inherent belief that that will be the, the avenue by which guilt or innocence will be determined uh, sufficiently or are you know expressively and so i think that at that point in time that's where the change would occur so we're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll have a few final thoughts stick around hey you yeah you we're talking to you and we need your help as you probably know Independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy, and like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. There you go. Come Monday, it'll be all right. Can't play anymore. I have to pay some more. So that's quick, quick, quick uh, funny story about that uh, song. Uh, I grew up uh, near Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, Buffett, at some point in, I guess, the 90s, uh, he had to cancel a show in Charlotte. 
And one of the, at the time, I think it's still going, uh, local morning shows, John Boy and Billy did a parody song of that. And part of the lyrics, they were, um, you know, criticizing Buffett. They didn't believe his reasoning. I guess he was sick, said he was sick or something. Yeah. Uh, they didn't believe it. And the lyric that they, their parody song changed it to was, come Monday, you'll be pissed off. Come Monday, I'll be out playing golf. <laughs> And that, obviously, some Monday it'll be all right. Uh, and here's stuck, one from here's one stuck from in my life. brain for some reason. The uh, you know who named Jimmy Buffett as one of his favorite composers, none other than Bob Dylan. And it was uh, Buffett told a story of showing up one time. He said um, he was uh, walking to a, a marine supply store in the, in the early 80s, and uh, he said uh, he heard a voice and said, hey, Jimmy, that's a nice-looking pair of shoes. It was probably, he, he said, hey, Jimmy, it's a nice-looking pair of shoes, and it was Bob Dylan. He, and he was seeing a girl that he knew on the island, and a couple of guys worked for him on the road. They got together on Dylan's boat. He said, um, he invited me on the boat. We sat there and talked. We got stoned all day long, and Buffett came away convinced He'd made a deep connection with Dylan. I'm thinking, man, we have a bond here. And he didn't hear from him for five years. And then Bob was like, who are you? <laughs> he showed up at a, at a at a Dylan concert. So final thoughts yeah. for the day. <laughs> well, but yeah, and you know, the thing that's amazing about Jimmy Buffett was, you know, he sings these sort of sweet songs that you've been playing clips of, but he was an incredibly talented uh, man beyond music. He was an author of, several books. He is the owner of sort of like retirement villages. Yep. Uh, I forget what they were. They were called some, something like something in paradise. He owned um, like hamburger. I mean, he, he was worth um, at the time of his death, a billion dollars, a billion dollars. Wow. He's one of the richest musicians he was one of the richest musicians in the world, and not simply because of the parrot heads, as they were called, yeah. who went to his concerts religiously like like deadheads, but because of you know his business acumen um, as well. So you have to you know credit him for not just being a cheeseburger in paradise, you know, <laughs> songwriter, but of being a very astute um, businessman with you know diverse interests. Um, in literature and music and art and baseball. I think he was a yes. owner of the Marlins, right? A part owner yeah. of the Miami yeah. Marlins. Although I think, where was he born? Where's he, was he from the Northeast? Alabama, right? Yeah, I thought he was born in Alabama. That's, Is that right? Yeah. I, so. I sort of remember when we had the softball games back in the 70s, I thought he was a Yankees fan. Well, that's a good question. Let's see. I'll look at it. He was born in Pascagoula, Mississippi. That's mm. that's where he was born. Jeez. Well, and uh, you know who else listed him as a big fan was, and he was a Yankees fan, by the way, but he was, um, and died in Sag Harbor, but he was, uh, Paul McCartney was also a fan of his, said he was a great songwriter. So as as we sail off into the sunset, with Jimmy on 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 uh, remembering him on Sunday uh, this Sunday, John, I'll, I you you've named your favorite song. Did you ever see him in concert? I did not, unfortunately. Michael, did you? One time. When? When was it? 
Oh, you know, back in my, like you back in uh, college days. Yeah. That's the one time I saw him. And I remember uh, <laughs> you could get a contact buzz by just sitting in the audience at Jesse Hall when he played. There was like 5,000 people in a cloud of, of, of marijuana smoke over this, over, over the, uh, the theater. And so, but, I, but was there, was there a concert back then that that wasn't the case? <laughs> yeah, that's, well, now that's true. That's, I gotta tell you, that is true. I just don't want you to single him out as, a, as an exception to the rule of general sobriety of the concerts that you attended, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that's true right. too. The first one I attended, it was like, that was a Who concert. And I remember in 2007, I think I went to a Who concert with my son in dc and, and and we're sitting there in this and it's packed and i'm going yes this seems awful familiar because another marijuana haze a cloudy haze was over the state but you know i also went to a pink floyd concert where i think there was a not you you got the contact buzz before you even went in so yeah that's you missed something john that's well, well Matt, like but, you know the that. truth is that now with uh, decriminalization, you can go to, you know, sort of more traditional venues. You go to Wolf Trap or, or, or those sort of places to, to see a more traditional um, band. And you, you know, you stand in, on the lawn around the <laughs> facility and you get that same, you know, same feeling. Yes, you can, and and usually it's from the edibles. <laughs> let's, let's yeah. hey there. Let's, what a way to end the day. <laughs> so, as we end, John, as usual, give us your plug. Where where can we see you, brother? Uh, every Friday, rollcall.com, a weekly column there, and um, starting back after a congressional recess, a couple days a week, CQ afternoon briefing, uh, CQ.com. Subscribe today. And Michael. That said, with Michael Zeldin, a weekly podcast found on your major podcast apps. Wherever fine podcasts are sold. The name of this is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kieran. We also have, you can catch me, Free the Press is the name of the book. And every Sunday in salon.com, I'm sorry, every Thursday in salon.com with the uh, with the column next week, we're going to be taking a look at how the hell can Joe Biden and Donald Trump be tied in the polls? Oh, boy, that's going to be fun to, to take a look at that. So uh, thanks for joining us. It is Just Ask a Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam. 